This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle, and this week, Emily is off in the land of a thousand dreams or whatever they call Disney World with her family, uh, having a great time, hopefully. Uh, So I am delighted to have joining me today a former Jeopardy competitor, uh, and that is Seema Dahlheimer. Hi, Seema. (laughs) Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing great today, Kyle. How are you? Uh, I am also doing great. You were uh, in season 37, uh, but Mm -hmm. if you'd like, you can give us any or all the details about your Jeopardy experience. Sure, sure. So I, uh, my Jeopardy episode aired on November 22nd, 2019. So it was pre-pandemic. And uh, I did get my photo next to Alex Trebek, which was amazing. Um, I played against Elise Nussbaum and Joey Dasgupta. Um, I wasn't really sure how many times, if ever, the two challengers have both been Indian, but that was pretty exciting. And Elise uh, just was amazing, and she totally took that game. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's tough in those situations, like Emily and I talk about on the podcast all the time, like, Everybody who gets on stage deserves to be there, obviously, knows what they're doing, and it's sad, really, that there's only one winner. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, and it and it wasn't my game, really. Like, the clues did not hit me well at all. Um, you know, I, I got some of them, and that was great, um, but I had a blast, and I still had a gigantic watch party. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. You, I mean, you have to have a gigantic watch party. Yeah. Yeah, my my first game, I was lucky enough to win, and so that felt really good. But, like, even in the Tournament of Champions, like, I lost both of those games. I still had big watch parties, because, <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, a, like, it's a life dream um, for me, and I was 39 when I did it, so I was like, sweet, I accomplished this thing before I turned 40! So... Yeah! <laughs> so that was great. to go. Yeah. Yep. Uh, did you have... This might be getting a little too real, um... <laughs> but I like after it all aired and it kind of like subsided, I had a bit of a letdown of like, well, I completed that dream mm-hmm. and now it's no longer a dream. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really kind of difficult for me. And something happened that I thought would never happen ever in the history of my life, which is I did not feel compelled to watch Jeopardy for a while. Yes, that I think that is common amongst a lot of people. Yeah. For for whatever reason, you know, like either the the build up was so intense and then it's over and you're like, okay, it's over or mm-hmm. I know a lot of people especially after you lose that hurts, right? It do- it doesn't feel mm-hmm. good to have lost and then being reminded of that can also feel a bit raw. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've I've noticed that with a lot of people for a while we just kind of take a break from Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah, I definitely did. And I would kind of come back to it because it was Alex Trebek's last season then in 2020. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, so I watched some of them, but not all. It wasn't like a daily thing anymore, whereas I used to DVR it and watch it daily. Um, And uh, and I'm getting back into it, which is great. Yeah, that is nice. 
I, I, you know, not to put words in your mouth, but I, I know for <laughs> me, reaching a, a, a sense of routine with mm-hmm. the hosting and the predictability of it has been really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The guest host, the round of guest hosts was, I understand that it created uh, a lot of buzz and people were tuning in each week to see the new person or each couple weeks to see the new person, but it did feel fragmented and uh, just a little bit difficult to get the hang of. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, a lot of the contestants who got their shot during that gauntlet, um, I think a lot of them feel that way as well, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, so Seema, what do you do other than so, have been on Jeopardy? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a professor of technical writing at Washington University in St. Louis. So I live in St. Louis, Missouri, and WashU is my alma mater as well. Uh, so I went there for undergrad and I ended up coming back. I teach technical writing, engineering leadership and team building, Uh, something called Engineers in the Community, which is like a social justice-focused, St. Louis-focused, community-engaged class for engineering students. Uh, So it's kind of the humanities and social science arm of our engineering school. That is really cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I I, I guess when I think of like engineering, it would never have even crossed my mind that that would be something that's part of a program. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't uh, I didn't know it was a job that existed when I graduated from college. Technical writing, what's that? I studied English. Um, but it is interesting how I sort of made my way into this. And uh, I've been teaching in the engineering school at WashU for, uh, it'll be 14 years now. Wow, that that's really impressive. <laughs> cool. I, I just wave my hands all day and kids make, you know, toot their horns in front of me. So, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, All right. Well, should we talk about Jeopardy? Absolutely. All right. So this is the week of February 14th, 2022. And on Monday, Valentine's Day, we have the (laughs) contestants Hung Tham, an assistant adjunct professor from Stanton, California. Carrie Christian, a healthcare administrator from Rockledge, Florida. And Dave Rapp, a writer from Valley Village, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $30,000. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, Geography, Pop Culture Stupid Answers, Classic Novels, Commercial Slogans, American Fives, and Smell You Later. <laughs> um, I would like to note that the intro to this episode, um, Ken uh, mentioned that Dave was the second contestant with a mohawk. Um, and I do remember watching TJ a couple mm-hmm. seasons ago um, with his blue mohawk. And uh, yes. it was really neat to see that little blast from the past up in the corner. Yeah, you're, yeah, that that's true. Yeah, a lot of lot of traction for Dave's whole look in, in the social media, which is nice. Although I get, I mean, I, I, we're talking about it, so I'll jump right to it. Concurrently happening right now is the college championship, and mm-hmm. I don't remember if it was on Monday or Tuesday. There was a young woman in the college uh, championship who had the same exact stance as Dave, with the arms crossed, holding the buzzer in the same exact way, huh. and wouldn't you know it? bunch of people on social media decided that a young woman with that stance was unpleasant to watch and uh, should just be happy and should smile more. But apparently no, apparently no, no concern about Dave also using the exact same stance and buzzer hold. 
Oh my gosh. I, in my opinion, the stance and buzzer hold are very cool for, uh, you know, for just about anyone. Hold your buzzer however you want. Stand right. however you want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the first things I figured out in my, you know, in like the rehearsal round before my, my taping was like, oh no, I have no idea what to do with this buzzer. I, I, I held it kind of like a video game controller at first, just like in my hand. But then as I buzzed, I noticed my arm was like drifting out to the side and I wasn't feeling like I had control and it was it was distracting me. So I decided to hold it a certain way for my games. You you hold it the way that makes it so you don't have to think about it because you're trying to think about answers. Right. And I held mine sort of uh, sort of weirdly out like they were like, make sure that we can't see your buzzer. We don't want to see you buzzing in. And then I realized when I watched my episode, my buzzer was in plain view the whole time. (laughs) They told you that they told you that they They don't want to see it. Weird. They did. They were like, you know, ideally, we don't want to see you mashing the buzzer over and over again with your thumb. So try and keep it discreet. Oh, interesting. I don't I don't know if they told us that. I, I don't remember being told that I. I know I talked, I, uh, I think, I think it was on the podcast with Rob Warman about how when they can, when the audience can see the buzzer, you can make it look like, you know, every answer if you mm-hmm. mash it after someone else has buzzed in, <laughs> right? Like they right. see you buzzing in. It's like, oh, I just, they just beat me on the buzzer. Even if yep. you have no yep. idea, <laughs> which I may or may not. Yeah. That that would right. I, as I think about it, I'm like, hmm, that might have happened once or twice. Right. <laughs> like I kind of yeah. know this. Let me let me give it a let, let me give it a try. But after I think I'm gonna get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, we yeah. haven't even talked about clues yet. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, just wanted to point that out because yeah. uh, there need to be voices speaking out against dumb people on social media who try to cloak their misogyny in like entertainment. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, as I'm thinking about this episode, I really enjoyed some of these clues. The classic novels uh, section was right up my alley. That mm. uh, that column was right up my alley as somebody who studied literature and uh, as somebody who reads a lot. And so, uh, so I was sort of pretending to buzz in with them and thinking like, I know these, these are great, you know. Um, yeah. So I don't know how you felt about that category. Uh, pretty good. I got the I got the four that they got. I did not know the go between at the thousand dollar level. I didn't know that one either. I, I got the first four pretty uh, pretty easily. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and I've read most of them as well. So yeah, um, I know Kyle how you feel about the stupid answers category. So yes, because maybe- it came up recently too. <laughs> I guess maybe they're doing stupid answers a little more often now. Um, I guess. Yeah. Uh. I, but that said, and as somebody who should have known this, given my age and my interest in rock music, I did not get the REM one. Uh, oh. I thought this eponymous title, I thought, okay, it's going to be REM, and mm-hmm. it was not. <laughs> no, and it was eponymous. That is, I mean, I am trying to be fair about this particular category. It's not It's not always obvious, right? Mm-hmm. It just, mm, I don't know. Yeah, it it feels yeah. It I mean, it feels easy with a lot a lot of them. What is what if it, this is as good as it gets? Well, right. if you've ever heard of that movie, you're gonna get that one. <laughs> right, like I've never seen that because mm-hmm. it came out when I was eight and I had no interest, and I also still have no interest. But I know that title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, kind of moving over to the um, geography category. 
I apparently am not very good at geography. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was looking at these and I don't think I, well, I knew the Pyrenees, but Mm -hmm. other than that, I don't think I knew any of them. Hmm. Yeah. So like the thousand dollar level, uh, located in Arkansas, Lake Chicot, Chicot is the USA's largest lake of this type formed by a bend in a river. And they showed a picture. Yeah. That, I mean, that's an oxbow lake. That's a know it if you don't, or know it yeah. or you don't, right? That's not a, that mm-hmm. you can't logic that out. Um, right, right. I was looking at the shape. I'm like, well, it looks like the letter C. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is it a sea lake? Right. right. Turns out it's an oxbow. I thought, well, <laughs> this is close to me. I should know this. Yeah. So. Uh, since we're talking about the geography category, mm-hmm. uh, we can jump to daily double number one, which is mm-hmm. at the uh, $600 level there. Uh, Dave finds it at pick number eight. He is at 1600 Carrie is at 200 and Hung's at 800 and he bets it all, uh, which he likes to do, which is the right choice. Mm-hmm. The clue is the Aleutians divide the Bering Sea from the Pacific, but are still part of the belt with this un-icy name. Dave doesn't get there. They're looking for the Ring of Fire. That, to me, was a very tricky worded clue. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, they're technically part of the Ring of Fire, and I guess that would be considered a belt. Yeah. I, I don't know the the word that like the the clue of the Aleutians divide the Bering Sea from the Pacific doesn't mean anything mm-hmm. to the fact that they're in the Ring of Fire. Mm-hmm. Like it seems it's like misdirecting you to look only at that region, I think. Yeah, I think at the speed that clue was, you know, the speed of every clue, Mm -hmm. as I was listening to it, I had trouble just picking up on the unicy part of it. So I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, it's part of a belt. Okay, it's supposed to be an unicy name. And it would be hard in the time that you're given to be able to puzzle that out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's a tough one. Uh, So he drops his zero, but like it's early in the game and everyone's, Mm -hmm. everyone's close. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Dave is... Back up in the lead at 4,400, carries at 3,600, and hungs at 600. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have the double jeopardy categories behind the Old Testament name, potpourri, part Latin before and after, science, history books, and Johnny Gilbert reads lyrics from the heart. I do like those categories. <laughs> Johnny- that was really fun. That was really fun to, uh, to uh, hear those clues. Yes. I do like classic rock, um, and I do all right on music. So I thought those clues were uh, were fun, uh, though I did not get Frank Ocean for the two thousand. Oh no, I pfft, <laughs> not not nowhere close to that one for me. I was maybe not entirely surprised, but a little bit surprised that uh, the four hundred clue, which was never mind, I'll find someone like you. I wish nothing but the best for you too, was a triple stumper. But then I think the problem was that was it Dave who rang in and named the named the song, not the band, or uh, yeah, yeah. So it was like, like a that. like misunderstanding of the category and what you were supposed to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. With the before and after, the part Latin before and after, um, I always think it takes a a lot of quick thinking to be able to come up with these in the time that you're given. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Especially with Latin stuff. Uh. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that was that was rough. I mean, I felt like if if I had a little more time, I might have been able to puzzle some of them out. Um, one thing I thought was funny, Kyle, is I was reviewing a couple of your old episodes of the podcast, and in episode seventy nine, uh, you and Lori Goodman were talking about that week's episodes, which was you know a while ago, and the Crockett and Tubbs before and after came up in that as well. The uh, Miami vice versa was the answer in uh so that's not the first time that jeopardy has done miami vice versa <laughs> yeah which is funny that's because th- that's a very specific clue <laughs> like <laughs> it's it's not even like yeah i mean we've talked re- in the last like i don't know how many months the writers seem to really like ethiopia right now but there are a lot of ways you can ask about ethiopia this is like they mm-hmm. asked the same exact question for this very <laughs> obscure like latin pun <laughs> yeah and i sort of wonder like maybe i should be on the lookout for miami vice versa again sometime from the jeopardy uh clue crew that's right it could show up at any time <laughs> daily double number two was behind the old testament name and um it was for 1200 well it was the 1200 clue this youngest son of jacob had a name meaning son of my right hand dave gets this one and bets 5,000 on it. He answers, who is Joseph? And the answer turns out to be Benjamin. I did not know that. I also did not know that. Now, I can't say the Bible is uh, the best category for me, uh, being not from a Judeo-Christian background. Um, right. But uh, when when I was prepping for Jeopardy, I did buy an illustrated children's Bible and read it. Uh, That's smart. I thought maybe I'll get some. <laughs> yeah, I mean that'll that'll get you the names and it'll get you the Ooh. general stories that you mm-hmm. can piece things together. Yeah. Yep. Honestly, sometimes the illustrated children's bible get it more right. Yeah. Uh, not not to dive deep into that morass, but and daily double number 3 is in the history books category at the uh, $2000 level. It's pick number 28 and Dave also finds this one. So he found all 3. If you find all 3 daily doubles, got to hope you're going to win that game. He bets 3,000 because uh, he's up to 16,600 and carries back at 4,000 and hungs at 5,000. Uh, and he gets a clue. The rise and spectacular fall of God's holy warriors is the subtitle of a recent history of this medieval order of knights. And he gets that correct with who are the Knights Templar? Who I don't... I, f- I feel like I should have done a deep... Have I done a deep dive on the Knights Templar? I don't know. I've talked about the Knights Templar a number of times before. So Gotcha. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, Dave has gotten himself into a lock position at 19,600. Carrie is at 5,200, Hung is at 5,000, and they get the final Jeopardy category, the Midwest, and the clue. At about 90,000, it's the most populous U.S. city on North America's biggest lake. And gosh, uh, <laughs> Ken pointed out that both that, that everyone in the game is like, quote unquote, from the coasts, so maybe the Midwest mm-hmm. would be a little hard. This was tricky. This was tricky tricky. because when you think of populous American cities in the Midwest, they're not on Lake Superior because most of Lake Mm -hmm. Superior is to the north. So Hung wrote, what is Green Bay? Uh, Which I believe Green Bay is on Lake Michigan. Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. And he wagered 1,025. That's incorrect. Kerry wrote, what is Minneapolis? Which is in the right state. But is Minneapolis on a lake? It's not on a big one. Um, it's on the I, Mississippi River, but it's not really on a great lake. Yeah. Okay. So good. Whew. 
Okay, I remember a little <laughs> bit of my geography. Uh, she bet everything but a dollar. And Dave also wrote what is Green Bay uh, for 2400 mm-hmm. but it is Duluth, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. I am a Midwesterner, Kyle, and I did not know that. <laughs> I've yeah. been to Minnesota. Um, uh, so, you know, as I was thinking, oh, no, what would I have guessed? Um, I was like, St. Paul? I don't know. I had Minnesota, but I just couldn't go from there. Yeah, I, f- I figured it was Minnesota, but I was like... It wasn't until they started revealing answers that the name Duluth came to me, so I definitely mm-hmm. didn't get it in the 30 seconds. And even mm-hmm. then, I was like, I don't know, is Duluth on a lake? I don't know where Duluth is, I just know it's in Minnesota. <laughs> I was thinking, like, name a Minnesota city. I was like, Rochester? No, that's south, I think. Um, so, yeah. Right, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I have St. Paul and Minneapolis, and I'm like, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Dave was in a lock, so it didn't matter anyway, and he wins his uh, second game. So Tuesday, February 15th, uh, we have our uh, three contestants, Laura Owens, a middle school teacher from Amesbury, Massachusetts, Jamie Rollins, an international economic development consultant from Washington, D.C., and our returning champ, Dave Rapp, a writer from Valley Village, California, whose two-day cash winnings total $47,200. So for the Jeopardy round, our categories are, oh, the things I've done, edible etymology, a chapter of it begins, Tony winning musicals by song, international prisons, and six-letter verbs. I know you said yesterday that that, uh, Jeopardy round did not um play to you all that well Mm -hmm. this round played to me very well this one the edible etymology one usually i do great on food and drink so as Mm -hmm. i was going through here i i knew uh i knew it looks like all of these um all of these the edible etymology category but really when it comes to eating uh (laughs) i i do well on potent potables too so you know nice well, yeah. well, then it's good you're here. <laughs> yeah. uh, I didn't know that biscuit was from the French for twice baked or old French for twice baked. I knew the answer because I know in England that's what they call cookies. Mm-hmm. But I, um, I didn't know the second half of that. But the bi, the by, you know, with French being a romance language, mm-hmm. I thought, okay, twice baked, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, being Indian, I'm very familiar with biscuit being used as a uh, <laughs> as a synonym for cookie because in India they uh, they use the British terminology for it. Right, of course. Talking about it now, it suddenly makes sense. Back when. I don't remember how long ago Emily and I got in a heated debate about the inherent quality of Triscuits. Where Ah. do you fall on the spectrum? Are Triscuits good or are they terrible? Oh, they're great. What is with people and liking things that are that hurt to eat? I don't get it. They're pointy in every possible way, Kyle. They're triangular and they're like... A little it, like eating little shreds of cardboard, but somehow in a good way. What do you mean somehow in a good way? You describe <laughs> something bad and then you're like, so of course it's good. That doesn't make sense. Uh, but what we learned like was the name Triscuit comes from, is because it's baked by electricity. So the mm-hmm. tray, the try comes from electricity or tris. Mm-hmm. And now I'm seeing that quit is from the old French for baked. I did not know that. So now that so, name makes more sense, but it yeah. still doesn't make them taste better. 
So uh, was Emily on the side of Triscuits being good? Yeah. Right. Yeah, she abs yeah, she she was like, Yeah, Triscuits are Triscuits are great as a conveyance for butter or cheese. That's agreed. I agree. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> but what you're saying is that you like the butter or the cheese. <laughs> uh anyway. Before th- I tell you what, this was the most engagement on social media we ever got was when we argued about Triscuits. <laughs> I am definitely on Emily's side on that one. Well, okay, good. I'm glad. Okay, that's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Whatever. More for you guys. I would just won't eat them. So um, in Oh, the Things I've Done, the $600 clue, which was in June 1791, I tried to escape captivity, fleeing Paris in a regular guy hat. Unfortunately, people tend to recognize the king. Um, I thought the answers on this were, uh, you know, sort of all um, getting close to where they were supposed to be. Um, I think Dave started out with, well, Jimmy said Louis the Fifteenth, right? And Dave yeah. said one of the other Louis or something. Uh, so they were all sort of Dave, getting yeah, Dave right said around Napoleon. There. Oh, Napoleon. Right. And so, yeah, that's always tough when you have to name a king and there's so many of them with the same name. I, I tend yeah. to be all right with my Louis being from St. Louis, which is, you know, <laughs> named after a Louis. So. Sure. I mean, the clue there was the year, right? 1791. Mm-hmm. You had to had to know which which one that was and what the mm-hmm. time period. Mm-hmm. But that, that was pretty funny. In a regular guy hat. <laughs> In a regular guy hat. <laughs> and then the... $1,000 clue, around 342 BC, I got the call from Philip II of Macedonia to tutor his 13-year-old kid, Al. Well, that's just great. Um, I thought that was a fun clue. And um, I did not know that Aristotle was the tutor of Alexander the Great until I had my oldest son, whose name is Alexander. And uh, my father-in-law said, oh, Alexander. Well, did you know that Alexander the Great was tutored by Aristotle? And so that's how I learned that one. Nice. Yeah. yeah, it's good Good to have that connection. Now, was this, like, information brought to you, like, soon after your child was born, so you were still yeah. in, like, the like the, the haze of having just given birth to a human? Yes. Uh, wow. And, I'm, and, and you remembered it. That is incredibly impressive. Um, my, my father-in-law um, was uh, originally trained as a Catholic priest, which he gave up a few years in because it wasn't for him. But, uh, but he essentially has, you know, a, a, an advanced degree in the classics. So I get okay. to learn a lot of uh, really interesting stuff about, um, you know, Greek and Roman history from him. So huh. that's cool. one little bit. Daily Double, number one, is in that six-letter verbs category at the $600 level. Dave finds it at pick number eight. He is at 1600 Jimmy's at 2000 and Lara is at negative 400 And he wagers everything, again, right move, and gets the clue. This word, meaning to interfere, comes from the Latin for foot. And you can kind of see him working that out. Um, I had the same process mm-hmm. I imagine he did. Uh, and he figures out that that is impede. Um, I tried to go through that process and did not get there in time because I kept trying to think of words that started with ped and mm-hmm. didn't have oh. the, right? So I was like, pedant, no. And, you know. <laughs> and yeah. At the end of the Jeopardy round, we have Dave at 5,800, Jimmy at 5,600, and Laura at 1,000. The double Jeopardy categories are the 50 states. Who was that masquerade man? UN resolutions, the human body, from the old tool shed, 
and it's the only vowel. Uh, that The only vowel category, I mean, the name of the category does, in fact, tell you what it's about, mm-hmm. right? It tells you that it is the only vowel. But it was a bit of a tricky concept at first. So the $400 clue, uh, in where you're said to start from when you begin a new project, Jimmy rung in and said, what is scratch? That's incorrect because they only they want the only vowel. Uh, so mm-hmm. they were looking for A. And then every other clue, uh, the contestant seemed a little hesitant to answer because it's a weird thing to answer, right? In mm-hmm. a clear or yellowish fluid that helps remove bacteria from body tissues, they're looking like the word is lymph. So mm-hmm. what is Y? So yes, yeah. <laughs> that is correct and for it, a different... And is Y a vowel, really? Because I am I sort of fall on the side of it's a consonant, and it acts like a vowel sometimes, but it's really a consonant. I don't know how sure. you feel about that. I have no strong opinion there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I guess in the word lymph, if it's not a vowel, then that word has no vowels. <laughs> right. You know? The 2000 question in that category, which was in the two title words of a Shakespeare comedy, where we meet Sir Andrew Aguecheek, two different vowels, unless you know that character, trying to get to a Shakespeare play with two words with only one vowel each. um, Yeah, that's tricky. That was very hard. (laughs) I did not. I was not able to do that. And I certainly took a Shakespeare class in college, and I've read a lot of Shakespeare plays, but Twelfth Night was not one of them, and so yeah. I didn't get to it. Yeah, I uh, during the pandemic, during like the the lockdown time, I was like, you know what, I'm going to read more because I'm at home. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do? I'm going to make a commitment to read at least, you know, like a book a month or whatever. And so I took the big, giant, complete works of Shakespeare and put it on my bedside table. I was like, I'll read some Shakespeare before bed every night. And the problem with that is if you lay down where you normally sleep and then you try to read Shakespeare, you just fall asleep. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I very quickly failed in that endeavor and it's still on my bedside table. So so this is the cure for insomnia then. The complete Shakespeare. Yeah, because when I read Shakespeare, it takes, like, it takes a scene for me to get into the language. But if I'm sleepy, my eyes just close. Like, like I just stop and I go to sleep. So, yeah. Well, with Shakespeare plays, I almost wonder. They've been turned into movies so often that probably for every play, there's one movie out there that would be great to watch. And anyway, mm-hmm. it's meant to be performed, right? And then yeah. that would be maybe a, a good way to take in your Shakespeare. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so, Daily Double, The Human Body. So this was the $1,200 clue under the human body. Two-word term for the group of nerves behind the stomach. Jimmy rings in on this and can't come up with a guess. So he ends up saying, I don't know. And the answer is the solar plexus. I couldn't come up with this either. (laughs) I knew that the solar plexus was a bundle of nerves. I did not know that it was behind the stomach, but I was also like, I don't know any other names of bundles of nerves. <laughs> so I think I would have guessed solar plexus thinking it was mm-hmm. wrong because I, I picture the solar plexus like at your sternum because mm-hmm. that's where I've always heard it referred to. But I guess if it's just like at your sternum and then like four inches back, mm-hmm. right, that would be more like behind your stomach. Yeah. 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 So Jimmy drops down there. He and Dave, man, they were duking it out. Mm-hmm. They were they were duking it out there. That was his chance to take a big lead, but he drops a little behind, uh, and he finds daily double number three 
at pick number 17 in the UN resolutions category at the $800 level. He wagers another 3000 mm-hmm. He gets a clue issued on this date. Security Council Resolution 1368 was on, quote, threats to international peace and security caused by terrorist acts. I thought of the right answer, but I think it's mm-hmm. kind of a coin flip because it's like, did they or did they not? He mm-hmm. went with the other side of the coin. He said, what is September 11th, 2001? But they didn't convene and enact this thing until the next day, September mm-hmm. 12th, 2001. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense because probably in New York, they wouldn't have gathered in a big target on that day. You know right. what I mean? So unfortunately, he drops down another 3,000 and uh, remains in second place. So the scores at the end of the double Jeopardy round are Dave at 17,400 and Jimmy at 10,600. Unfortunately, Laura is in the red at negative 2,200. So she was not able to play final Jeopardy. So it's down to Dave and Jimmy. And the final Jeopardy round, the clue, um, the category is 20th century authors. And the clue is as follows. Early in his career, he worked for a newspaper whose style guide said, use short sentences and use vigorous English. The answer was Hemingway. And both Jimmy and Dave got it right. Um, Jimmy had wagered 8,000, Dave wagered 4,600. And uh, so the final scores are Dave at 2,200 as now a three-day champ. Uh, with a total of 69,200, and then Jimmy in second place with 18,600. So he wins the $2,000 for coming in second. Yep. So on Wednesday, we have the contestants Emily Budd, a customer service rep from Rochester, New York, Charles Fogelman, a geographer from Champaign, Illinois, and Dave Rapp, a writer from Valley Village, California, whose three-day cash winnings total $69,200. We have the Jeopardy round categories Flick Picks, Naval Conflict, Greek Letters Roman Numerals, Kid Lit, Six Letter Adverbs, and The Lion in Winter, but Lion as in Lying. All right. And as I saw, these three contestants of note were the fact that I thought Emily's sweater was great. I loved it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh huh. And yeah. And then Charles Fogelman being from Champaign, Illinois, that's just up the road from where I live. Yeah. I'm thinking of Champaign, Urbana. Okay. That is exactly it. Yep. Yes. It's Champaign, okay. Urbana, Illinois. Um, it's just up, uh, up Highway. 70? Wait, yeah, it's up Highway 70 um, okay. from uh, from St. Louis. So Cool. So the Roman numerals category, which they started out with, I am absolutely terrible at Roman numerals, so mm-hmm. I'm very glad not to have gotten a category like this in my game. Mm-hmm. I remember in, our, in my Tournament of Champions, I think it was in the finals, there was initials to Roman numerals math. So they gave you a clue about a person. You had to take that person's name and convert it to Roman numerals and then do some kind of mathematical operation to it. Oh, man. It was it it was impressive. That was a tough. That was a category for sure. Wow. Like any time you have to do math with Roman numerals in that amount of time, I just don't have the mind for it. I think, you know, like $400 clue in Greek letters, Roman numerals, which was LXII divided by IX equals this, either number system mm-hmm. acceptable, Yeah, you know, and I'm sure there are people who would get it right away. But um, Dave did get that one. It's 72 divided by nine. Yeah, he, he, he worked it out. 
And then the kid lit, I will tell you that because I have children, mm-hmm. uh, this category hit me just right. And uh, and I also kind of thought, hey, if I didn't have kids, there are at least two of these. There's no way I would have gotten. So I mean, the four, the $200 clue books by mm-hmm. Mo Willems implore, don't let this creature stay up late or right. drive the bus. That's the pigeon. We right. love those it's books. Definitely the pigeon. Yeah. Of course it's the pigeon. Yes. <laughs> My elder daughter has taken to, as we're driving away and they're waving, she wants to roll down the window so she can yell to her grandma, Grandma, don't let the pigeon drive the bus. <laughs> Just like, as we're driving through the neighborhood. So, uh, I yeah, love course. it. And then yeah. the Sandra Boynton books, Barnyard Dance mm-hmm. and Moobot, la la la. We definitely have both of those, um, among others. Yep. And uh, I've got a video of my kids jumping around and doing the barnyard dance uh, nice. <laughs> at, at some point. Yes. Pajama Time is one of our favorites. Oh, yes. For sure. That's a good one. They oh, might be yes. stripey or polka dot, but we can all pajama in whatever we got. That's right. <sighs> Thank you, kids, for potentially earning <laughs> me money on trivia. Daily Double number one is in the naval conflict category at the $800 level. It's pick number 29, so it came very late in the round. Charles found it. He's at 5200 which is ahead of uh, Dave's 4400 and Emily's 3600 And he wagers $1,200. Uh, he gets a clue. On August 2nd, 1964, North Vietnamese torpedo boats fired on the Maddox, a U.S. destroyer, in this body of water. And he gets it correct with the Gulf of Tonkin, which, of course... Led to the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which led to the American involvement in Vietnam. Anyway, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Dave uh, is at 4,400, Charles is at 6,400, and Emily is at uh, 3,600. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, countries on the equator, planetary talk, our avian friends, TV moms, lost, and four words. With our avian friends, this was... um... This was a really interesting one. They picked the first, the 800 and then the 400. I did not know that the adjective pinnate means having the shape of, uh, so it asked one of these bird features and the answer was feather, but it was a triple stumper. I would have guessed beak. I don't know about you, Kyle. It made me think of pinion. So I was like, oh, is it like a pinion? Would I Mm -hmm. say pinion? Is that a? thing i just i didn't get to an answer basically yeah and then they said fed he said it's like a feather and i was like oh yeah that that would be (laughs) (laughs) that makes a lot more sense yeah and then that becomes uh, a little bit difficult and they jump over to the four words category um Mm -hmm. which then the daily double pops up on uh, the fourth question so it's the um the 800 dollar and it is this four-word phrase occurs eight times in a landmark 1963 speech. Uh, Charles gets this, the Daily Double. And the answer is, I have a dream, which um, I know that speech. And it is powerful and does repeat that apparently eight times. Which makes sense if you're, uh, if you're making a statement. Mm-hmm. Make it clear what that statement is. Mm-hmm. And I found the rest of these um, to be, you know, phrases that if even if you didn't know them right away, they might come to you, um, you know, in this category. So even though it was a little bit daunting, it's like, oh, four word phrases, like the correct answer has to be four words. Um, They were all pretty well known phrases. Yeah, it wasn't just like pick some four words from a thing. It was Mm -hmm. like these four words are well known as these four words. 
the countries on the equator um, category. Charles didn't quite run the whole thing, but he got everything but the first one he rang in on. And I think Ken made a little uh, point at the end to say, okay, the geographer almost runs the category, <laughs> something yeah. like that. Um, yeah, so well. yeah. always, always nice to get a category that hits you like that. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> I think I've mentioned this, one of my games in, in my in my run. I was in third place going into Double Jeopardy, and lo and behold, the first category was all about Leonard Bernstein, who I happen to have <gasps> written my master's thesis on. <laughs> so oh, I was fantastic. Like, well, how about that? <laughs> yeah. uh, Daily Double number three is in the lost category at the $1,600 level. Emily finds it at pick number 25, so again, pretty late in the round. Uh, she is at 9200 Dave is at 7600 and Charles is at 16500 She wagers... 2000. She gets a clue. John Dos Passos and Archibald MacLeish were among the 1920s writers known collectively as this. And she uh, gets it correct with what is the lost generation. Mm-hmm. Again, Ken had coached her. He said, you can move into the lead. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, and she said, part of me says YOLO and part of me says, uh, and then she took a really long time <laughs> and Ken was like, we need a wager. <laughs> it doesn't happen a lot. I liked Emily. I liked yeah. her whole presence. I yeah. thought she was a lot of fun. Yeah, her her reaction to uh, getting Tracy Ellis Ross right in the uh, in the um, <laughs> TV Moms category was great. So. Right. Yes. Um, she she said, "All right, did not lose my black card on that one." And uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, uh, Dave is at ninety two hundred. Charles is in the lead at 18,500, and Emily is at 13,200. And we have the final Jeopardy category, 18th century history. And the clue, the stated aim of this period was using violence to achieve political goals. Its success aided in its demise in under a year. Uh, This was a triple stumper, which I I can kind of understand, and I'll explain why after I read the answers. Dave wrote, what is anarchism? That is incorrect, and he wagered 800. Uh, Emily wrote, what is the French Revolution? Which, or sorry, what is the French going for French Revolution? Uh, which is also incorrect. She wagered 9999. Charles also wrote, what is the French Revolution? And he wagered 8,000. Um, so he is the champion at 10,500. I thought that was tricky because I was unaware and hesitant to think that the Reign of Terror, that the Reign of Terror had a stated aim. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I, I yeah. we know... Like I know Robespierre, and we know we know what the Reign of Terror is, but mm-hmm. did they call it the Reign of Terror, mm-hmm. and thus have a stated aim for this particular thing? Mm-hmm. Apparently, they did. I guess yeah. that's what pointed mm-hmm. me away from it. But mm-hmm. and I was looking it up because I thought it was called like initially. My thought was, is it the Reign of Terror or the Terror? And I looked it up, and it looks like those are interchangeable terms for it. So maybe the terror would have been accepted as well. That was maybe the key term. Uh, interesting. Um, uh, because okay. I thought some of the um, – <laughs> I read a lot of fiction. I mean, I do read some nonfiction, but I read a lot of historical fiction as well and then yeah, look stuff fun. up based on that, right? Um, and mm-hmm. I, I was pretty sure that something I had read called, called it the terror throughout. And then uh, – um, I, I looked it up and I was like, well, am I misremembering that? But it looks like those are used interchangeably. Well, now I know. <laughs> All right. Thursday, February 17th, 2022. Uh, the contestants we have on this show are Linda Sellers, a retired archivist 
from Durham, North Carolina, Matt Takimoto, an elementary school teacher from Moraga, California, and Charles Fogelman, our returning champ, a geographer from Champaign, Illinois, whose one-day cash winnings total $10,500. For the Jeopardy round, our categories are plus, Midas, that's so cliche, dessert, jazz greats, and Abraham Lincoln, read by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Um, so all of those uh, clues were read by Cor- Doris Kearns Goodwin. Yeah, that one was pretty cool. That was really cool. Um, so it looks like the contestants started with the Doris Kearns Goodwin category, uh, which makes a whole lot of sense because that was going to be interesting and, and fun to learn from. Um, right. And I n- know there's a Lincoln movie coming out that was tied to this or miniseries. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although strategically, if you want to maximize the dollar amount you can get, mm-hmm. leave the video category for mm-hmm. last. Right, because they, they did end up running out of time on this one, right? Yep. They left three clues on the board because video clues always take longer. Mm-hmm. And typically, they're going to give you the time to get through all the video clues. So leave it for mm-hmm. last. That makes sense. I was a little bit disappointed that the Midas ones were left on the table, three of them, because I thought, ooh, Greek mythology, maybe I would have known those. Yep, I also had the same thought. (laughs) Um, (laughs) In the dessert category at the $600 level, even if I'd never seen The Godfather, uh, (laughs) because I was raised by, let's just say, a man from the baby boomer generation, uh, (laughs) I know this quote. Uh, it's a mm-hmm. line from The Godfather, leave the gun, take this dessert. That's the mm-hmm. cannoli. That cannoli. I, I don't know what it is about that line and men of a certain age, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure every, I, I'll say at least like white American man of that generation has their own Godfather impression and mm-hmm. will say that line apropos of nothing. Yeah. It's, I think, part of the American vernacular in certain communities. So Yeah, yeah absolutely. So the daily double here coming in for the $1,000 question on dessert. And the clue for the daily double is what the French call an omelette norvégienne is what Americans call this dessert. And it was uh, Matt who got this one. He says, what is, and then sort of pauses, and Ken has to prompt him, and he ends up going at the last minute with what is custard. And the answer here is a baked Alaska. Yeah, which I guess you're supposed to get because Norwegian is north and Alaska is Mm -hmm. north. I don't know. Omelette kind of threw me off there. (laughs) Like, I don't think I don't equate omelette to baked Alaska. Yeah, uh, I, I couldn't, I wasn't even close. I kept trying to think of things that were omelet shaped. And I was like, crepe is actually a French word. So they would call it a crepe, right? And so I just right. couldn't get to it. Yeah. I want to say that under the Midas category, the second to last clue of this round, it looks like um, mm-hmm. the lost hero by this adapter of myths for young adults, Midas turns Leo and Piper into gold sk- statues. So uh, sort of like the children's literature category that we discussed earlier in this uh, podcast. This is one where if you have kids of a certain age, you're just going to get this one because the Rick Reardon mm. books are ubiquitous <laughs> all over our house. And my older son uh, said, Mommy, you should uh, you should read these books. 
books after I read each one. So now I've read 21 Rick Reardon books. And, oh my, uh, 21? Yeah, <laughs> they, they come in fives for the most part. Um, so the first okay. three series are like the Greco-Roman series. They're like five, five, and five. But then there's a Norse mythology series that's three of them. There's an Egyptian one that's three. Wow. I mean, yep. you got a lot of material to draw on, so I guess that makes sense. Yep. But wow, I did not know he had that many. I have not I have not read them. They're page turners, which makes sense given how popular they are. So Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Charles is at 2,400, Matt is at 1,000, and Linda is at 3,200. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, British Territories and Dependencies, the movie title Element, Animals of Note, a hard category, a measure of authority, and for what it's worth, with F-O-R in quotation marks. So in the measure of authority category, the $800 clue, reasonably sure that people would like another story about dinosaurs. <laughs> he published The Lost World in 1995. I will say that as a uh, person who was 15 years old in 1995 uh, and who is a reader, I definitely bought that book when it was new and uh, had read that. Nice. And it was not, not quite as good as Jurassic Park, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, when they're prompted to write a sequel because the movie was so successful, I don't think that sequel is ever very good. Sure. But also, I mean, if you bought it, <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't need to worry too much. <laughs> right. <laughs> the money's already in the bank. Exactly. You can't, can't get it back. Just quickly because emily would be upset mm-hmm. if i didn't in that author <laughs> category at the 400 dollars level emily bronte says it flat out in chapter one this title place is the name of mr heathcliff's dwelling mm-hmm. uh that's withering heights emily hates withering heights i just want to make sure that, <laughs> that i get that out there so that it is stated once more that is <laughs> that book does not hold up like i i get i think when i read it when i was a teenager i was like oh this is interesting like heathcliff mm-hmm. is so romantic or whatever he is not right he is not romantic that is not no. what romance is supposed to look like <laughs> no he's a whiny child <laughs> yep <laughs> he, in my yeah. mind he fits the same space as uh uh holden caulfield in catch yeah. Rye. Gosh, like, I can't stand Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> I know. I like as I was reading it, I was like, "Man, this sounds like these like I don't want to cuss because this is a family show. This sounds like the same like numbskulls who I can't stand in real life right mm-hmm. now. Why am yeah. I reading about this kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like you know, just stop whining, <laughs> suck it up, and <laughs> just. Right. But no, I, I know it's supposed to eel, appeal to, uh, you know, uh, sort of kids in existential crisis of a certain age. So so maybe. if you read it when you're that certain age, it'll speak to you. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you'll be like, oh, this is awful. <laughs> <laughs> so we have our first Daily Double here in Double Jeopardy. It is in British Territories and Dependencies. And it looks like Linda picks this one up and bets 3000 the um, clue is Point Christian and Bounty Bay are features of this South Pacific Island territory. And Linda can't come up with anything. And so the answer is Pitcairn Island. And Ken comments that it's where the Bounty Mutineers wound up. Yep. Uh, so Fletcher Christian is a name to associate with the Bounty. And also Bounty is a name to associate with the Bounty. <laughs> So, and Daily Double number three is in a hard category at the $1,200 level. Uh, Matt finds this one. He's at 4600 
which is behind Charles's 12,800 and Linda's 6,600. Uh, and he makes a move. He, he wagers 4,000. Gets mm-hmm. clue. This brand with a biblical character in its name offers hard side luggage with a polycarbonate composite shell. And he gets it correct with what is Samsonite. So he moves himself up into a better position there. That would have been tricky for me if it had literally been any other luggage name. Um, I could only come up with one name of luggage, and it was Samsonite. Well, there you go. (laughs) That, That would have been lucky. Right. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, we have Charles at 14,400, Matt at 11,400, and Linda at 10,600. So it's a pretty close game at that point. The category is long-running TV show characters. And the answer is this character, who has been on the air for more than 50 years, is only six and a half years old. So the answer here is Big Bird. And uh, Linda bets a thousand and says, "Who is Charlie Brown?" Matt, who bet ten thousand, answers it right with, "Who is Big Bird?" And Charles, who had wagered eighty four oh three, came up with, "Who is Daniel Tiger?" Mm. Which Daniel Tiger was a, I believe, was a character in Mister Rogers' Neighborhood, um, mm-hmm. in the sort of the world with King Friday and all that. So, um, yeah. so. Uh, that wasn't a bad guess. <laughs> no. um, Just not quite as old as Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. So their final scores then. Charles, uh, our returning champ, is now in third place with 5,997. Linda is in second place with 9,600. And Matt wins this with $21,400. And he is our new champion. Yep. I thought that was a very tricky clue. (laughs) It was a tricky clue. And I was able to come up with it because for some reason, and I remember this from when I was a child, I remember that Big Bird is six years old. Okay. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) sure. I I don't know that I've ever heard that fact before, but now now it'll stick with me because it's so (laughs) jarring and (laughs) off-putting. Because he's six. Where are his parents? Of course, I guess (laughs) that's true of like all the Muppets on Sesame Street. Like Mm -hmm. Elmo still talks in the third person. So where is Elmo's parents? Right. (laughs) Right. Or any of them. Which I mean, I realize. Yeah. Anyway, not going to get into it about Sesame Street right now. Okay. Uh, So on Friday, we have the contestants Carter Lockwood, an attorney from Columbia, South Carolina, Bridget Krantz, a communications specialist from St. Paul, Minnesota, and Matt Takamoto, an elementary school teacher from Moraga, California, whose one-day cash winnings total twenty-one thousand four hundred dollars. And we have the Jeopardy round categories: North American literature, from S to S, state quarters. Gymnastics, Stick, and The Landing. All right. I will mention that the North American literature category, which um, some of the clues come up fairly early here, I thought hit me really well. I kind of wish I had had that. Um, The triple stumper of the $600 clue in that category, this 1991 novel by Canadian Douglas Copeland, gave a name to a whole cohort born around the same time. I do think it was trick. It was tricky wording on that um, clue. 
Um, but the answer there was Generation X. Uh, Carter had rung in with what are millennials, and I can totally see what he was going for, because if you think born around the same time suggests so the same time as 1991, then it would right. be millennials. Um, but I have read that book. So, and also I'm in Generation X. So, so yeah, <laughs> it's a little more obvious. Right. That makes sense. So the Daily Double here comes very late in the round. It is the, what would have been the $1,000 clue in the landing. Uh, so Matt picks this up. The clue is in 2019, China's Chang'e 4 probe made the first landing here, a place not even glimpsed by humanity until 1959. And Matt bets 2000 on this and gets it right. It is the dark side of the moon. Yeah, he. I mean, he seemed like he was guessing, but it was right. That's a great guess. I was trying to come up with something, and I'm like, not even glimpsed by humanity. But that's got to be far away. So I was like, is it past Pluto? Is it Ceres? Is it, you know? Right, is it Planet X? Yeah. <laughs> right. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, we've got Matt at 8,600, Bridget at 2,400, and Carter at 4,200. For Double Jeopardy, the categories are Historic Men. Bring your A game, which is that each response will begin with the letter A. Books by funny people. In the chemistry lab. Bodies of water. And end your response with a preposition. That was a tricky category. <laughs> yeah, those phrases, you know, I, I felt pretty familiar with a good number of them. But you don't really think about the fact that they end in a preposition. Mm-hmm. Right, like, um, yeah. I mean, there were a couple that I just, yeah, I, I, I did not know, like the mm-hmm. death warmed. You look like death warmed over. I, I knew that one, and I wonder if it is a regionalism, Kyle, because our contestants here are from uh, South Carolina, St. Paul, which is like northern Midwest, and then mm-hmm. California, and I'm from the lower Midwest. But I knew that expression right away, and so uh, I wonder if it's a regionalism. It must be. I mean, I've yeah. I've never, to my knowledge, I've never heard that before. And then uh, with the $2,000 clue, when reporting for duty on a U.S. Navy ship, the first thing you'll say is request permission to do this phrase. And it's come aboard, and I knew the phrase, but it had not occurred to me that aboard is a preposition. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'd never thought about that word as a part of speech. Right. <laughs> but it, it is. is. <laughs> it is, obviously. It's just whoever yeah. sort of, you know, it's not like over, under, or through, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So It's not your uh, schoolhouse rock <laughs> preposition. <laughs> and then uh, I will say the bring your A game, a couple of responses skewed uh, really well for people my age or a little older and would be quite <laughs> hard for uh, for maybe people uh, younger. The um, 1979 Atari game. And the uh, sequel to the Evil Dead movies. Um, well, okay, now <laughs> I don't know about the age for Army of Darkness. <laughs> that feels pretty niche to me. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I feel like it was wildly popular as a movie that people watched in college when I was in college back okay. in about two thousand two, two uh, two thousand one, two thousand. Um, uh, it was one of these things that people would, you know, they'd make solo cup drinks and you'd watch on VHS from Blockbuster. 
Army of Darkness. That that's fair. That I mean, that's kind of how I experienced Army of Darkness. <laughs> I have a friend who, for some reason, it like his dad and thus him were, are like huge Bruce Campbell fans. <laughs> so one day I just was like, we were hanging out, and I when we watched Army of Darkness, and I was like, oh, this is awful, and also awesome. <laughs> yeah, I imagined myself if I were on stage, just like with this big goofy grin on my face as i'm like is this army of dark are you asking me about army of darkness right now (laughs) (laughs) daily double number two is in the bodies of water category it's at pick number three uh carter finds it it's in the 1200 dollars level he is at 6200 matt's at 8600 and bridget is at 2400 and he wagers all 6200 smart move mm-hmm. gets the clue formations like the great barrier reef gave this body of water its name and he gets that correct with what is the coral sea so he jumps out mm-hmm. to a fairly sizable lead at that point so then very late in the round here we have the uh the third daily double it's in the category in the chemistry lab and it is what would be the 1600 dollars clue um so carter picks this one up and uh, he wagers 3200 on it. It's used to crush and grind. This pair of tools is featured in a permanent display at Philly's University of the Sciences. And uh, he thinks about it and can't come up with anything. And the correct answer is mortar and pestle. Mm-hmm. I don't usually think of a mortar and pestle as a science tool. I think of it as a kitchen implement uh as far as my kitchen goes at least but um but i i did think if it's not mortar and pestle i don't know what it is yeah (laughs) there's not really another option there (laughs) yeah so he drops down which puts him pretty firmly in second place going into final jeopardy matt's at seventeen thousand four hundred. bridget is at 3600 and carter's at thirteen thousand six hundred. and the final jeopardy category is plays And the clue, first published in 1602, its title characters are Margaret and Alice. Uh, So that that date should point you pretty much to Shakespeare, as we've already talked about today. Um, Bridget got it correct with what is the Merry Wives of Windsor, and she wagered nothing. I don't (laughs) think that was the right wager. Like, yeah, Matt and Carter have to, like, play against each other, but Mm -hmm. Matt's cover bet is not going to be big enough to drop him down there. Would Carter have to? How much did Carter bet? He bet thirty-eight oh one. If he subtracts thirty-eight oh one from ter- thirteen thousand six hundred, what does that come down to? Is uh ninety-seven okay. ninety-nine or something like so that? So it's like, not like she would have had a chance if she bet it all. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. I guess uh, it, it, optimal wagering strategy: Bridget mm-hmm. should not have a chance. Mm-hmm. But whatever. You never know. Uh, never yeah, know. Yeah. So she bet zero. That's that's fine. Uh, mm-hmm. Carter wagered thirty-eight oh one. He also got it correct with what are the uh, what is the Merry Wives of Windsor? And Matt got it incorrect with <laughs> what is Two Gentlemen of Verona, which is a good joke. <laughs> Way to go! If you can't think of it, you might as well think of something clever, right? Yep, make a good joke. And he'd wagered ten thousand, which uh, was a, it's a cover bet um, mm-hmm. and a little extra. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that means that Carter is the champion going into next week all right all right so that is the week uh and that brings us to the point in the show where we remind you that we have a patreon it is patreon.com slash potent potables uh you can go there to find some 
exclusive content. Uh, mostly recently, it's been our quiz questions. You get those a, a little bit early, but also you can find some older stuff, outtake reels, recaps of the GOAT tournament now, like what, three years ago, four <laughs> years ago, however long that was. But uh, yeah, if you want to support the podcast financially, help us offset the costs of, you know, just maintaining the domain and, and the, the, the hosting fees and all that, uh, you can slide us a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if uh, you'd rather direct your money and attention to something a little more important than a podcast about Jeopardy, then uh, we like to point out uh, blacklivesmatter.com, communityjusticeexchange.org, and the uh, Stop AAPI Hate GoFundMe pages. So you can check those out too. All right, so... Seema, you have prepared a deep dive and a quiz, and uh, just for the sake of transparency, normally we try to guess it, but in order for Seema to make sure that she didn't cover a topic that had already been done on the podcast, uh, she cleared it with me, so I know what she's talking about. Um, So take it away, Seema. Okay, great. So here we are going to do a deep dive in the answer to, or I should say the question that went to the final Jeopardy answer uh, on Thursday's game. This character who has been on the air for more than 50 years is only six and a half years old. The question was, who is Big Bird? So we're going to take a deep dive into this beloved TV character today. And just a little bit of background on Sesame Street. So Sesame Street was created by Jim Henson in 1969 is when it started airing. And it's produced by Sesame Workshop. It's one of the longest running shows in TV history. Um, It has over 4,500 episodes and it's been going for over 50 years now. It's been syndicated in 120 countries and has inspired over 20 international versions. And then Sesame Street has won more Emmy Awards than any other program. Really? Yeah. So, and I mean, I guess with its continuous run of that long, it kind of makes sense. Sure. Um, But that's, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting, interesting fact. So uh, who is Big Bird? Some of you may be familiar with Big Bird or you've seen him around on television. Uh, Big Bird is an eight foot, two inch tall, uh, six and a half year old bird who lives on Sesame Street. He's been a mainstay of the show since its debut in 1969, and uh, he shows up in a whole host of books and other Sesame-related media. He can roller skate, ice skate, dance, sing, write poetry, and ride a unicycle somehow. That's pretty tall for a unicycle, but he can do it. He lives in a very large nest behind 123 Sesame Street, and Oscar the Grouch is his next-door neighbor, and Oscar lives in a trash can. So Big Bird's personality is he's naive, inquisitive, he's really friendly to everyone, and he's always willing to learn. So he befriends new characters that are new to Sesame Street. He makes them feel welcome, such as when Abby Kid Abby joined when she moved to Sesame Street. He also makes it clear to the kids and adults watching that it's okay not to know something, uh, which I think is something that will appeal to all of us Jeopardy fans because we're always learning stuff. Uh, so a couple of my favorite quotes of his are, Asking questions is a good way of finding things out. And then another life lesson is, I guess it's better to be who you are. Turns out people like you best that way anyway. Oh. Yeah. Um, And so he used to have an imaginary best friend named Snuffleupagus, or Snuffleupagus was maybe imaginary. Um, It was a big, fuzzy, elephant-like animal, and all the adults deemed him imaginary. 
But then in the early 1980s, the Sesame Workshop eliminated Snuffleupagus as an imaginary friend because of all the problematic aspects of having adults continually disbelieve a child who is telling them that something happened. So they did not want to be part of that on television. And I certainly remember Snuffleupagus, and I always wondered where he went. So now I know. So now we know. (laughs) He was killed by the adults. (laughs) Um, So another really important relationship that Big Bird had on the show was that he was very close friends with Mr. Hooper, who ran the general store. And Mr. Hooper often made uh, birdseed milkshakes for Big Bird. And Big Bird couldn't quite get Mr. Hooper's name right. So he often called him Mr. Looper. And that was like a plot point. And then the actor who played Mr. Hooper, Will Lee, died in 1982. And Sesame Street famously and gracefully tackled the subject of death on the show. So Big Bird came to Mr. Hooper's store and the adults on Sesame Street explained to Big Bird that Mr. Hooper had died. Um, And this was considered a landmark moment in children's television because of its honesty. So Big Bird has been in a number of movies and guest starred in cameo roles in a number of Muppet movies. So Muppet crossover. (laughs) Um, So some things you might wonder, what species is Big Bird? The discussion of Big Bird species is a little like all of those years of speculation about which Springfield The Simpsons was set in. No one knows and everyone likes to speculate. Nice. So Oscar the Grouch has called him a meadowlark and a homing pigeon. Big Bird himself has deemed himself at different times a lark, an oriole, a canary, and a golden condor. Um, Other characters in turn have speculated that he is a canary, part turkey, and a parakeet. Um, Big Bird discusses his lineage at times and has told us that his grandfather was an emu and his uncle a turkey. So this gets to something, Kyle, that you had mentioned earlier about Sesame Street, which is what's up with Big Bird and does he have a family? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So Big Bird lives alone. Uh, He moved to Sesame Street to kind of branch out on his own. Uh, But the adults in the neighborhood have informally adopted him as theirs. As a baby, Big Bird was raised by Granny Bird and Nanny Bird. And he has other relatives, too. So he has a mom who sends him a new coat in the mail in one episode, a sister whose egg he babysits, and a father who gets a mention. And then Big Bird also has a teddy bear of his own named Radar. Here's another fun fact. Big Bird's birthday is March 20th, which is just nine days before mine. Who knew? So you might be wondering about how Big Bird is performed and who performs Big Bird. So the Big Bird performer is completely enclosed in the costume. And he uses his raised right hand to operate Big Bird's head and neck. And then, this is a little hard to picture, but he uses his left hand as Big Bird's left hand. But then the right hand is attached to the left wrist with a fishing line. So it's like, like a, almost like a marionette line or something. So the puppeteer's or the Muppeteer's left hand, which is in the arm hole of the, I guess, the left uh, arm, is able to control the right hand. But if they really need to have some dexterity on Big Bird, then a second Muppeteer operates the right hand. So initially, Jim Henson himself was a candidate to play Big Bird. But the costume designer, whose name was Kermit Love, didn't think Jim Henson walked right in the costume. So Henson offered the part to Frank Oz. But Frank Oz hated performing full-body characters. Mm. And so Muppeteer Carol Spinney it was. So... 
Carol Spinney was cast as Big Bird. He is the longest running performer of Big Bird. And he did it almost from the very beginning of Sesame Street until the mid-20-teens when he tapered off and finally retired in 2018. Spinney was sick during the first few episodes of Sesame Street in 1969. So Daniel Seagrin played Big Bird during those first few episodes. And then on the back end here, as Carol Spinney retired, Matt Vogel has taken over as Big Bird after over 20 years of being Carol Spinney's understudy. Seagrin, Vogel, and others have played Big Bird in live performances, in parades, and TV special appearances over the years as well. Um, And Carol Spinney died in 2019 at the age of 85. Um, So you may be wondering about Big Bird's costume, because that's a big costume, right? Mm -hmm. So what is it made of? Big Bird's feathers are turkey feathers, but they're dyed yellow. There are approximately 4,000 feathers on Big Bird, though Count Von Count has counted the feathers on different (laughs) occasions and come up with 5,961, 4,798, and once a whopping 6,273. So clearly Big Bird's feather count can vary. Um, (laughs) Okay. Turkey feathers, it turns out, I learned, are rated from A through D, and typically only A and B rated feathers are good enough for Big Bird's costume, though sometimes yeah. they fill in the bottom with some C rated feathers. Yeah, not D rated trash. <laughs> I know, those must just go in the trash. And the feathers are replaced every two weeks or after any live event where the Muppet goes, like, um, does an engagement or something. So one of the craziest facts about Big Bird that always blows my mind, and this is something I had learned before I went in and did this deep dive, is there were plans for Big Bird to be among the crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger in 1986, but his costume was too big to fit. So fortunately for Carol Spinney and very unfortunately for schoolteacher Krista McAuliffe, who was the civilian who ended up being chosen, Big Bird was not on that mission. The Space Shuttle Challenger on January 28, 1986, broke apart in midair just 73 seconds after launch, killing all eight people on board as the world watched on TV in horror. Um, So Big Bird was saved from that fate. Big Bird's won some special awards and accolades that are unusual. He finally got his Hollywood Walk of Fame star in 1994. And uh, so Big Bird got, got a Walk of Fame star in 1994. And Big Bird was also featured on a U.S. postage stamp in 1999 and on a number of other stamps in 2000. Fiji, Kiribati, and the Cayman Islands, and also Samoa. So really? he's been on mail. And so I would like to leave you all with one of Big Bird's poems from the 1974 album Big Bird Sings. And I thought that you all as Jeopardy fans will particularly appreciate it. So the poem is called A Poem About One of My Very Favorite Letters of the Alphabet by Big Bird. Today I wrote a poem and I put it in my book. It's about a certain letter that's shaped sort of like a hook. It's a very special letter and I like it quite a lot. The big one has a line on top. The small one has a dot. It comes at the beginning of a word like jelly beans, or John, or Jane, or Jenny, or a brand new pair of jeans. You'll find it in the alphabet between the I and K. And if you haven't guessed by now, well, it's the letter J. So there you have it. Okay. That is uh, 
little bit of a deep dive on Big Bird, and I hope you all learned something new. Yeah. Gosh, I know I did. (laughs) (laughs) 4,000 feathers, turkey feathers. (laughs) Yes. And apparently there is a difference between Between some of them. (laughs) Each kind of turkey feather. Only the best will do for Big Bird. Yeah, really. Well, cool. Thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. All right. You have a quiz. I do have a quiz. I have six quiz questions here for you. So are you ready, Kyle? Oh, I'm always ready. All right, here you go. Question one. Big Bird's human friend, Mr. Hooper, founded and ran Hooper's store, which is where Big Bird learned a very important lesson about mortality. It was then taken over by David, followed by Mr. Hanford. Who is the current proprietor of Hooper's store? And first name only is fine. Oh, man. For some reason, we never, we haven't gotten our kids into watching Sesame Street. This is not like a, oh, yeah, of course, I've watched all the episodes. Um, And I only know of one, I only know the name of one human, like one, one human person <laughs> on Sesame Street. And I don't even know if he's still on it. I'm pretty sure he is. And I'm going to say David. It is Alan. It is Alan. Okay. Okay. Been a long time. And every time I see Sesame Street stuff, I'm like, why don't I have my kids watching this? I should have my kids watching it. I don't I don't know why. I just never it's never what we put on, which I need to do. Um there's some vintage ones you can get online too that are fun. So Oh nice. Oh yeah. Well Emily at one point mentioned <laughs> the like Sesame Street version of like the Book of the Dead. Or maybe it's oh, nice. the Muppets. Is it the Muppets? <laughs> no, I think it's Sesame Street. It's nice. like it's very it's trippy. Anyway. Anyway, moving moving on. Moving on. Question two. Big Bird's near miss by being too uh, too big for the space shuttle, shuttle Challenger is always on my mind as I think of Big Bird's and Carol Spinney's lives. Teacher Krista McAuliffe was selected as the civilian on that mission who would inspire children by going into space. Astronaut Ronald McNair, who died aboard the Challenger, was, notably, the second African-American to go to space and the first person of this religion. Okay. Second African-American and first person of this religion. Can, can I ask a clarifying question? Indeed. Is, is this, is, is all of Christianity lumped into one Christianity? Yes. Okay. yes. All of Christianity is lumped into one Christianity. Okay. Um, uh, I, I would guess Islam. Astronaut Ronald McNair was Baha'i. He was Baha'i? Yes. That is so cool. And also, I never would have guessed that. (laughs) This is something totally new that I learned, and I had no idea, and I thought that was really, really cool. Um, That is really cool, and rather obscure. Man, that is not the one. (laughs) I went through a number of them, and I was like, well, I'll I'll, I'll go with Islam. (laughs) That was a good guess. (laughs) Thanks. So maybe that one was a little hard, but... <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. That's really cool. Um, so question three. Big Bird sang Bein' Green at Jim Henson's funeral in 1990. Legendary Muppet creator Jim Henson died of pneumonia caused by what condition? What condition? Man. Hitting all of these things, I do not know. <laughs> um... So essentially, what did Jim Henson die of? Right. I mean, because... Yeah, the the cause of death is not necessarily right. always the thing that's actually right. And I put the pneumonia in the question because I 
thought we should actually figure out what he died of and if you had said pneumonia that would have been right technically so but it's like what's the actual thing he died of um i'm just gonna i'm gonna go in general and say cancer so that's what i would have thought too but i looked this up he died of strep a so he died yeah he died of a preventable or not preventable but an antibiotic treatable bacterial infection um and it is widely said that uh if he had gotten to the hospital like a day or two earlier they might have been able to save him wow that is something (laughs) yeah man so um question four over here i have a hint for you if you want it because it's a kind of obscure fact but probably uh, will need it Um, the hint might not be as obscure, though. So the first episode of Sesame Street was preceded by a 30-minute preview called This Way to Sesame Street. The show was financed by a $50,000 grant by what company? And then the hint, do you want it? Yes. Engineers at this company developed the, developed the graphical user interface. Hmm. I mean, I, I'm thinking of... Mm-hmm. I, I mean, a thought came to mind, and I'm like, "Is that is that right? Is it the right time? Is it too obvious?" I I don't know. IBM. I'm gonna go with IBM. It is not. It is Xerox. So Xerox, Xerox developed the GUI, developed the graphical user interface, and then Steve Jobs and Apple like. Wait, it's a little bit in contention whether he stole it from them or whether he took it from them for a steal. But whatever it was, he grabbed it from them and then Apple had it, you know, sort of deployed as the first graphical user interface. Um, interesting. So, yeah. Wow. I'm learning lots of very interesting things here. So question five. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We may not have had Sesame Street on our PBS stations at all, if not for a famous 1969 speech that saved public media for the time being. Who made that speech? Well, that was, I I better be right on this. I'm pretty sure that was Mr. Rogers. (laughs) It was indeed. It was Mr. Rogers. Okay, good. If you have not listened to it or seen it on YouTube, um, it is is definitely worth the listen. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And then here is your final question, Kyle. All right. Well, uh, I only have 10 points, so I'm going to bet 10 points and still. (laughs) (laughs) All right. This is one where you can take an educated guess to and, you know, we'll see. Uh, Carol Spinney, the voice of Big Bird, also voiced another famous Muppet on Sesame Street. Which other Muppet did he voice? Oh, man. (laughs) Uh... Also voiced another Muppet on Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. And I can give you that he voiced, it was not like a guest star Muppet. It was like a Muppet that was on Sesame Street One for like a long time. Yeah. Can I ask if it's still on Sesame Street? I believe so. Okay. I can't imagine Sesame Street without this Muppet. Well, it's down to like five, <laughs> right? There's Elmo, there's Oscar the Grouch, there's Cookie Monster, there's Grover. Um... That's only four. I don't even know of another one. Gonna go with Oscar the Grouch. And you're right, Kyle! Yes! (laughs) It is Oscar the Grouch, who is Big Bird's next-door neighbor, because Big Bird lives next to Oscar's trash can. So So when they would talk to each other, it's just one guy having a conversation with himself. Yep. (laughs) That's always fun. 
Yep. And I, I was surprised by that because um, Big Bird and Oscar sound so different from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently the Oscar, the Grouch voice was inspired by a cab driver that Carol Smitty encountered. <laughs> that, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So there there you have it. There's a little bit about Big Bird and also adjacent things like the Challenger and Sesame Street and Jim All Henson. right. Wow. Those were a lot of really cool facts. And I didn't zero out, so I don't feel too bad. Wow. Well, thank you, Seema. This has been a lot of fun. I agree. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me, Kyle. Of course. Uh, Be happy to have you back at any time. And yeah, thank you. Thank you for the deep dive. Thank you for the quiz. Thank you for stepping in. I really appreciate it. Any parting words? Anything you want to like, I don't know, plug or shout out or you have a platform. I do not have a platform. So uh, (laughs) so I will just say, you know, keep being inquisitive. Maybe we can learn a little something from Big Bird's philosophy in life, which is to keep asking questions. Yep. I think that is a great thing to say. Thank you, listeners, for listening. Uh, remember that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables. You can help us out there. You can also help us out by, uh, you know, if you have friends who watch Jeopardy and and think they'd be interested in the podcast, just uh, tell them to listen. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. Uh, so until next week... May your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.